Welcome to the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm your host, Paula Crossfield, a Vedic astrologer and business coach helping you to live in your purpose. And that is what this podcast is all about. So let's jump right in to the conversation. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm so grateful that you're here and I'm really thrilled to have Kate Shutt, an incredible musician on as my guest interview today. Before we jump into that, I want to make sure that you know that my two-month intensive program for spiritual entrepreneurs called Your Magnetic Blueprint is now open to join And the reason why you would want to do this is because you are looking to either up-level your business to earn more, you want to pivot your business, maybe you've moved from in-person to online and you're trying to figure out how to market yourself really effectively. I am going to help you do all of those things. So if you're interested in learning more, you can go to the link in the show notes, Your Magnetic Blueprint and join us for the next cohort. Last time we had 34 people join. It was so fun. Everybody got connected and is supporting each other. It's such a beautiful thing to watch happen. So I'm really excited to see who joins this time and learn more about your businesses and help you up level. Okay, so on the podcast, we have Kate Shutt, who is an award-winning singer-songwriter, guitarist, and producer whose voice NPR calls glassily clear and glossily sweet. Kate's songs have won top honors from the John Lennon Songwriting Contest and ASCAP. American Songwriter calls Kate's newest album, Bright Nowhere, illuminating and the work that ought to bring her to the wider recognition she so decidedly deserves. Kate has shared stages with Terry Lynn Carrington, Bill Frizzell, Julian Lang, Scott Colley, and Bernard Purdy, to name only a few. When not making music, Kate is an elite life coach who specializes in helping people navigate big, pivotal, powerful moments, being ready to die, creating new careers, starting businesses, and chasing gold medals, literally. Her TED Talk has had over 50,000 views and has been called nothing short of life-changing for people struggling with grief and loss. In this conversation, we had so much fun. And even Kate turned the tables on me and asked me a few questions. One of my favorite things about this interview is that we went in deep on the subject of death and grief and loss and talked about her sitting with her mother as she was dying. And that led to her to create the songs that became this album. So you're going to hear a little bit of her music. You're going to hear about her process. And I'm really excited to share this episode with you. And I hope you enjoy. Hi, Kate. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Paula. Thanks for having me. I'm so grateful that you're here. I've been listening to your album and I'm like super excited to talk about it with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. (laughs) Before we get started, I normally start with people by asking them about their journey. So Mm. tell us a little bit about your journey to music. Mm. Did you grow up playing guitar? I did. I started playing piano first. I started around age 11 on piano. I I have two older brothers. They did not get asked or forced to to learn music. I was the last one around. uh, So my parents were like, come hell or high water, this one's gonna get some music lessons. So I started on piano. And then within a year was playing guitar as well, mostly because the boys in my class were playing guitar. And I was like, I can do that. Mm. You know, guitar is so cool. It's just a cool instrument. Totally. So were your parents musical? Is that 
My dad's side of the family is extremely musical. My dad has perfect, had, he died this past year, had perfect pitch. He did not know what that meant because he, unlike me, he was sort of, he sort of had the opposite experience. He had three older sisters who all were playing the piano and studying really seriously. And his parents got, they were sort of tired of hearing the piano when he came along. He was the youngest. So they put a harmonica in his hand and he was an incredible chromatic harmonica player, like amazing, could hear something once, play it back. He, he had perfect pitch. He just didn't know what that meant and never had someone say like, oh, this pitch that you know what it is, it's this letter name in the musical alphabet early enough. But, you know, like I said, he was, it, it didn't matter. He was, I mean, none of that matters. He was an incredible musician. So his side of the family was really musical. But in, in terms of the nuclear family, no, I was the only one who was studying and, and really going after it. So you told me in a conversation a couple weeks ago that songwriting is a process to get an answer about something. Can you say some more about that? Yeah, I think for me, songwriting is always, it's like, if I don't know the answer to something, I'll try to write a song about it. Because that process of grappling with articulating whatever the topic is, forces me to come up with some statement, you know, some position, some stance on that topic. But, you know, the song that comes to mind right away is uh, Bright Nowhere from my last record, which is the title track, which came out of a conversation with my mom about where do you think, where did she think she was going to go when she died? And she, and this was an ongoing conversation for us. And then one day when I was driving her to her chemo appointment, she, she was like, well, where do you think you're going to go? And I was like, ah. <laughs> you know, like I didn't have an answer really for her. I mean, I had like this kind of answer, like, I don't know. And, uh, and so that was, I was like, I got to write, I got to write a song about that. I got to figure out where do I think I'm going to go? Where do I think she's going to go? Where do I think anybody goes? But there's other songs that I've written. That's, that's enough. That's, that's the way I interface with the world. That's where songwriting and like my general curiosity connect. Cause there's a song I wrote that's, I don't even know if it's on any records called um, Jane Doe. And it's, it's sort of about what do we do with all these women, these famous women from history who are unknown or not very known. And so that was an exploration into that question. So tell us a little bit about your songwriting process, because you've told me that it's like slow and you've kind of created a structure for yourself. That you've shared with other people. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Sure. I've historically been a very slow songwriter. It takes me a while to write songs, uh, partly because I'm I'm persnickety um, and I care about language so much and I care about precision of language and I care about restraint and editing is a huge part of my process. So those things take time. And I think time is actually like the best tool for most things, but definitely for songwriting. It took me a while to develop my own technique. My, my technique is I essentially collect a lot of ideas and words. I have a, what I call a word hoard and then files and of, of ideas. When I sit down to write, I'm, I'm some of the time looking through those ideas and those word hoards for a phrase or a word or something that rings a bell inside me, you know, that sets off that little like, hmm, this could be a song. Or if I'm talking to someone and they say something that I'm like, oh, 
that could be a song like I scribble it down and, you know, later put it into my system, into my filing. It's essentially a filing system. <laughs> I mean, currently it looks like this, actually. This is hilarious. This is my this is my filing system right here. So what she's holding up for everyone is yeah. a bag <laughs> with a bunch of stuff in it. <laughs> but in there is yeah is like lots of Manila folders. Uh huh. And each one of those folders, if it's gone from being just like a one word or one phrase to like a song I'm working on, it gets its own folder. Okay. And the reason I do that is because I'm taking tons of time to work on one song and. I can't have it in like a spiral notebook or I can't have it in a, a like a moleskin notebook because I would lose it. You know, that I would fill that notebook up and it would have to be filed somewhere. So anyway, I have this loose leaf way of doing it and pick one or two or three to work on at any given time. Usually a couple because you get tired of working on one. You have to still make progress. So you, so you work on another one. And then I'm trying to marry music and words quite soon in the process. And that was sort of a late, late in the game realization. I used to do either music or lyrics, sort of, I'd get them more finished and then try to marry them. And it's just, you just paint yourself into terrible corners that takes a tremendous amount of time to get yourself out of. So now I try to marry them like right away. Every songwriter gets asked what comes first, the music or the lyrics. Uh, I, I think it's a little bit more lyrics first, but then music like very soon after. It's super fascinating because I have your chart here and you shared me, <laughs> shared your birth details with me and you have what's called a Saraswati combination. Mm. Saraswati is the goddess of learning and art and creativity and words and wisdom and writing. You also have your ruling planet is Saturn and it's in a, an exchange with Mercury who's in the first house. So people who are nerding out, she's an Aquarius rising. <laughs> so very inventive, you know, with all this creative energy in your chart, but also like kind of amplification of poetry. The words you can see are very, it's very clear that there's a sense of structure that has to come in. So it's yeah. really fascinating. It's funny that you say that because I geek out over words tremendously. I'm currently working with a co-writer, a guy named Steve Seskin. One of the reasons why I love working for, with him is because we'll sit there and think about whether it should be like, whether the word should be uh, something like as or though. <laughs> like, you know, we'll be like, spend an inordinate amount of time trying to really figure out is it as or though? And that's just on a like a little tiny word like that, much less like proper diction and like colloquialism and vernacular and like, you know, all the bigger questions of language that you get into when you're when you're writing a, a song and, tr and going for prosody, like is, is the right word in the right place? You know, is the emphasis on the right syllable? You know, yeah. that kind of thing. <laughs> so that's fascinating. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And I'll, I mean, we can talk more about what's mm. there, but I want to mm -hmm. go back to what you'd mentioned about taking your mom to chemo because mm. you and I have talked, I know your story, but a lot of the listeners might not know that story. So maybe mm -hmm. you could tell us about that moment when you got that call and you heard about your yeah. mom, and like what happened after that? Yeah, I was, I had uh, moved to New York and I had been living in New York for about a year. I had spent a decade almost in Canada. So I had moved from Canada. I'm American, but I'd lived up there working, playing music, et cetera. Moved back to the States, moved to New York. It was sort of just getting my feet under me in New York. And yeah, the, the short story is that I was getting ready to go away for some gigs. And 
I went home to say goodbye to my parents because I was going to go overseas for some gigs and I got out of the car and my mom was, you know, I just knew intuitively something was up. And she said, well, I haven't been feeling well for about a month. And, you know, long story short, we've tried all these things and none of them have worked. And I'm, I went for a CT scan and the results come in like while you're here having dinner with us. And, and so sure enough, the doctor called and my mom had a tumor the size of a grapefruit in her abdomen. And, you know, the doctor was like, we need to operate immediately, et cetera. So I said, right. Um, dad, please take me back to the train. I'll take the train back to New York. My parents live in Chadsford, Pennsylvania, and I will unpack my bags. I will repack and I'll be down on a train again tomorrow to see mom and you through whatever is coming. And I sort of knew because my mom's sister, who I was incredibly close with, had by this time already been diagnosed with and dealing with ovarian cancer. And my mom's symptoms were very much the same. The second my mom told me what her symptoms were, we just looked at each other and it was like, we kind of knew what was coming. So the next day I was on a train down to to Pennsylvania and moved into a childhood bedroom and put my guitar in the corner and didn't pick it up for a year and a half. And my mom had surgery within a week and was diagnosed with ovarian cancer stage 3C as soon as she could heal, essentially was starting frontline chemo and the rest is history essentially. And it, the doctor gave us, gave her uh, about a year of like quality life and then, you know, a sort of a declining year to death. So he essentially all in all two years, that's what, that was his best guess. And, you know, for we created together that she lived a really healthy, amazing four and a half years with so much life and went into hospice really early and just maximized her quality of life and living. Um, and I was there for the, for all of it. And then once she died, she died in 2015 in October, I stayed around for about six months to just help my dad kind of get used to the new normal. So I'm curious, because, you know, maybe you can talk a little bit about your album and how, mm, sure. I mean, I, I want to go into more detail about it, but maybe talk about this song, Victory on the Road to Defeat, and then mm. we'll play it for everyone. Oh, sure. Yeah. And then they can hear it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I was just listening to that song the other day. I was thrust into this role. You know, I thrust myself into this role. I was called to do it. And obviously, right away, there were so many things happening to me, to her, to the family. And those are air quotes around, you know, to the idea of family, to the idea of health and the boundary between well and unwell. I mean, just, you know, it's a cataclysmic event in the life of someone, in the life of the people who love that someone. And so all these things were happening. And I knew I just did not have the time or the energy to write and to pick up my guitar. You know, what I did have was a very well established habit of writing things down. And so I did exactly what I just explained to you. You know, I wrote ideas down or things I was noticing or feelings I was having or what is unwell? What is well? Like these questions I was experiencing and just put them away. But I kept doing that. I made myself do that. About a year and a half in, my mom went into her first big remission. You know, the frontline chemo worked essentially. It stopped the cancer from growing and she went into a, a, a remission. And so I finally got a chance to have some time to myself and to turn towards this pile of ideas and try to make something of it. 
And so that's what I did. I wrote the song Death Comes Slow was the first song I wrote and wrote about four or five songs. And then my mom, you know, the cancer came back, uh, et cetera. I mean, it wasn't like I lived away from her for that whole time. I was still living at home, but just I had more time to myself. So eventually I wrote about eight songs before she died that she heard. We got to see me gig them, you know, around New York, uh, house concerts, things like that. And so that was amazing. And I just knew that by the time she died or when she died, there were so many ideas I still had to pursue that that was what I was doing when, she, you know, after my dad was all set, I could again, my time was more my own. Then I just dove into those questions, specifically the kinds of I, the songs I wanted to write that were from her perspective, which I struggled to write when she was alive until my partner very astutely one day said to me, well, you can't write those songs because you can't put yourselves in her. You can't put yourself in her shoes. She's still in her shoes. Right? Like when she was alive, I couldn't write those songs that I wanted, the songs in which I was embodying her and, and her perspective and, and what this change must be for her, must be like for her. So there's a song called Square by Square where I'm in her shoes. So that song came later. So I worked and worked and, you know, eventually had about 18 or 19 songs written. I can't remember now. And then set about trying to figure out how to make them into a cohesive statement that people would want to listen to. You know, that was also really important to me is that I wanted to talk about all this stuff about death and grief and loss, but it was important to me to not have it be totally macabre and melancholy because it wasn't and it isn't. And loss and mortality is part of what makes life so amazing. I was very careful in writing the songs. I was very careful in, in choosing the songs that went out on the record. Let's put it this way. I mean, I let myself write whatever I wanted to write, but then when I had to, you know, package it, so to speak, arrange it, curate it, I was very, very cognizant of this. You know, I wanted this thing to punch you in the gut, but I also wanted it to make you happy and to make you sad. Well, let's listen to Victory on the Road to Defeat. They say I'm fighting cancer. Yeah, well, it's fighting me. I scored a couple victories on the road to defeat. But I'm tired of the hospital, the dry light and the shuffling feet And the hollowness of victory on the road to defeat Everyone
sun to shine, burn the cold light with its heat. Cause there's no such thing as victory on the road to So this song you had mentioned is kind of a commentary on the Western medicine yeah. system. So yeah. I don't know if you have more you want to say about sure. that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, Victory on the Road to Defeat was probably one of the songs I'm the most proud of. It's not one people mention or talk about or I even really play out in my gigs. But I had this idea very early on about just this idea that, you know, she had a life-limiting illness. You know, she was going to die. There was no doubt about that, whether it was going to kill her seven days from when she was diagnosed or seven weeks or seven months or seven years or 77 years, you know, but it was going to be the thing that killed her. And I was not going to mince words with her or with myself about that and anybody else. And so, you know, the, the struggle with the way in which our Western system of medicine is always searching for solutions. It's very rare that you find, especially towards the end, you know, as my mom got into second round of chemo and then when that stopped working, like, especially at that point, it's like, they're just offering, they kept offering her solutions. And I'm like, no, no, we're not getting on this drug. We're not doing this thing to deal with her incontinence. Like we're going home to hospice. Like, thank you. I understand that this is how you're trained and this is what you're set up to do, but like, I've actually read this book and seen this movie and like, I'm not doing, it's not life at all cost. And by this book and, and this movie, I mean, I've, I've, play, I've played it out and we're not, she's not dying in a hospital. She's dying at home with us and her dogs and her garden, pictures of her favorite places around her and only the people she wants to see and no, no others, you know, like, so victory on the road to defeat is this song that's like where I try to say all that without being tacky or weird. One thing that I that really struck me about your story is that you really started having frank conversations with your mom right away mm -hmm. at the moment of this diagnosis. Yeah. So did you have a relationship like that up until that point? Or did this facilitate you kind of jumping into that in a mm. more deep way? Yeah. Also, just for people to know, like you have a background as a coach, and I know you as yep. a person who has really thoughtful questions. So did <laughs> yeah. that come into play here? You know, yeah. was that helpful for you? Certainly my own journey of living, it was helpful in that my own in-touchness, however you say that, with death, with grief, with loss. I mean, I, I'm a person who had up to that point had experienced a number of losses that were close to me and serious and of mentors and of people. So this wasn't like it was the first loss I had. But and anyone will tell you that the first loss of a parent or the first, you know, big illness of a parent is shocking. I just was galvanized. I mean, I'm a pretty frank person and, and willing to go places with people and 
with myself and into the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. But I was galvanized by this to be like, look, this is going to kill you. And so I don't want to mince words. I don't want to pretend that it's not. I don't want to live a life in which we don't look at this thing. Because fundamentally, I think if we look at it, it will be less scary. And we have an opportunity. Like every day that you're still alive is an opportunity to shape and create what you want. And if I'm doing this with you, then that's the way it's going to have to be. Because like, I'm not, I don't want to do it any other way. And luckily for me, luckily for me, she met me there. She met me there. And that I realize now, of course, I didn't know any different, right? My mom just said, okay, like this is what we're doing. In retrospect and a living life since then and sharing my story through my TED Talk and with other people and through my music, I realized what a gift that was, that she was willing to meet me there and go there with me and play and live life this way. I'm curious about your story and, and like your ability to ask the, I don't know, Frank Raw, uh, <laughs> Well, as you're, I mean, as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, I, I'm the same. I, it's like truth or nothing, but I haven't had a parent in this situation. And certainly I was raised in a very different way where mm. there was just a lot of fakety, fake, fakety, fakeration. Yeah. Fakeration. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I was yeah. the one going like, internally screaming, like, what is this reality I have found myself in? Not that I had any sense that I was special or anything. No, no, yeah. But like, when I was a kid, I was literally like, why? What? It, like box stores, like the kind of generic reality. Like, I don't understand. I was craving something. So, you know, as you're talking, I'm like, would I have the guts to sit there with my mom and say, like, you could die? Mm-hmm. I think I could. Now, I think I yeah. could, but that's a big deal. And I think like as our listeners are listening as well, they might be wondering that like, what is something you would give to someone else in, in the moment that they're sitting? Cause we are all going to go through this where we have someone really close to us. It may be the end of their life and we, we may be the person who it feels like it's our responsibility to step up and help. Mm-hmm. I know that I know the people in my life who I would be that person for. So if that were to happen, what advice would you give to them or mm. what would you kind of say? Let's also remember it doesn't have to be a loss of life either, right? Like people can go through divorces, which are just as life limiting in a way, like a, a, a part of their life is ending, you know? And so I think it's important to just like pin that because just because like you can show up in this way in all sorts of situations for friends and family members and people that you want to show up like this. I mean, my I guess my advice is just that is like show up and the showing up can just be willing to say like, I don't want to mince words about this. Like, I really want to be here in the mud with you (laughs) about it. I didn't say to her, like, I have the answers. Like I had no answers. I didn't have any freaking clue how this was going to go. It's like the willingness to be in the question with them in a raw, vulnerable way. And I think just communicating that and saying like, I'm willing to be here with you in the truth of it and what it's really like, even if I don't know what it means and how it's going to look. And even if you don't know how it means, what it means or how it's going to look. Because there was no talk about that. It was just like, you know, it was just literally like, I'm not going to mince words with you and let's not. I'm like, how about we not? <laughs> you know, like, it's kind of like you're, I guess it was sort of like this moment where it's just, you, we were able to stop time, essentially, and be like, we're at a decision point here. All this stuff, I mean, obviously, it was a choice, but I, I never, it was never a choice for me. It's just, 
it just came out of me. It's just what happened. I mean, obviously everything in life is a choice, but I, it wasn't a choice. It was just who I was called, what I was called to do. You have this lyric. I think it's in I saw death arrive. Mm. I was the most prepared. I was the most surprised. That really, I mean, it really hit me because it's, it's like, well, what does that mean to you? Share with us yeah. where you're coming from with that. Well, I don't know. I want to hear what you, I want to hear what, what it, cause uh, you know, I want to hear well, you. I was you. the most prepared. Like I came here to be fiercely truthful and to mm-hmm. learn and be with you in this question, like you mm-hmm. said. And I was the most surprised at the end mm-hmm. with the loss and what it actually left me in. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's essentially it. It's like, I wrote that song. That song was this trying to wrestle with that, that idea. Like, cause when she was actually dying, actively dying is what they say in hospice. Um, it was like, huh, I'm the one who said, let's not mince words. This is going to kill you. I'm the one who this whole time for four and a half years has been like, what do you want to do today? What don't you want to do today? Who do you want to see? Who don't you want to see? Like I kept pointing us and her back to like quality of life, quality of life, quality of life. And all because this is going to kill you, you know? And then when she was in the moment of actively dying and she was dead, I was like, I truly was the most prepared. I mean, I pre grieved. This is a thing. Pre grieving is a thing and you can do it. You can do it now for yourself. You can do it now for your friends. You can, you know, and I obviously was doing it for her in ways large and small, in ways active and subconscious. And then, and yet when she died, it was so surprising. And it was just such a, it's so amazing to me. It was so, it was such a wild experience that I needed to write about it somehow. And and so your description is exactly that. It's like, how can I be the most prepared for this? way more prepared than my brothers, way more prepared than my father, way more prepared than her sisters. And yet I'm almost as shocked as they are. It's really a mystery. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. And like it, it comes to this place where we're all dying, you know? Mm -hmm. And so like this, the acuteness of knowing that it could happen sooner, put it into focus. But you've talked to me about this idea of ready to die, you know, like, yeah. how, how do we become? And this is a question I have r- rolled over in my own head. I spent four years, basically, mostly in India, mm-hmm. up in a little, I, I mean, I would travel around, but I had a little house up in the Himalaya. And I would sit up there and do like meditation practice for a few months every year for f- four years, right. and in the fall and the spring, you know, and I was quiet up there. And it was sort of like, that was the question is literally like, how do we face? That's what it all comes down to. It's like, we're trying to steady our mind so that at that moment in the Indian scriptures, it says at that moment, when you're dying, you want to be thinking about the divine. You want to be thinking about, you know, you don't want to be thinking about regrets. You don't want to be hungering for something because that's going to be what casts you forward reincarnation, like into your next life, having this steadiness and, and understanding of your own life and that you are dying in every moment, every breath. How was that for you? I mean, it was a million things, but like, did it start as like, I'm going this part of your practice. I understand practice is a multitude and a multiverse of of ideas and experiences, but like that particular part, you know, the meditation on death or on the moment of dying, was that something you resisted in the beginning? 
No, it's really weird. It's I went through a divorce. So my my listeners know this, but I went through a divorce in 2011. And it was devastating because I had a plan and everything got derailed. I, I lived in New York City and I had to get rid of most of my belongings. And so there was a death. There was a, a death that was happening that I had to come to terms with. And there was a certain part of me that actually realized that I, I am dying. Yeah, I, you that know, part of this, me is dying. Yeah. And so I think what, what happened for me is actually on the road up to this house, it's very treacherous. There's no bar like to <laughs> yeah. protect you. And it's a one-way road and, t- and two cars are coming two ways and it's up on the mountain. And it's like five hours of turning like this. And the car that you're in, you have to trust the driver because he's honking and he's going to go, I'm trying to show with my hands, like how they go around each other. They actually kind of go like this. And if you're on the right side, because they drive on the right side of the road, you're hanging on the edge. And so from the backseat of the car, I would look down and see the rocks below and the the moving water. I could literally die in this moment. You know, there was something about that. I would do my mantra practice yeah. in the car and just like steady my mind as I was... Because you literally, Kate, seriously, you would see cars that had fallen <laughs> I, on the road. I, I believe it. I mean, I've seen enough. <laughs> I know enough about this part of the world. I know enough about other parts of the world that are like this. That Yeah, you know, you're like, really? Am I putting my hands in this yeah. person for five hours? I'm going, I'm doing this. Yeah, I believe it. I know it. So you face that fear. You know, I, there are a lot of people who probably probably wouldn't do that drive. There's no other yeah. way to get up there. Yeah. You know, unless you hire a helicopter. Or something. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but anyway, I don't know. I think that kind of helped me too to keep myself steady. Was it already a part of your practice? Like most spiritual traditions have some death meditation practice. So was it already, you know, sort of built in or did you get more curious about it than the, the drive up back and forth twice a year? Like be like, whoa, I got to, yeah, I need more of that. Or like, you know what I mean? Like, was it already something you were working on in the practice also? I don't think it was, but I think there's just a part of me that realized that this is what it's all about is everything that we're avoiding, everything that we're afraid of, it's because we're afraid to die. And so like all the, it's all like machinations to avoid the reality, you know? So what about you though? Tell me like, was this experience something particular that made you want to kind of analyze that question? Or is this a lifelong kind of thing? Because I also see that you're ruled by Saturn and Saturn owns the 12th and 12th house is all about death and endings in the unseen and like the bedroom and like the things that are closed in retreats. I... I've always, like I said, I had a number of big losses in my life early on, people that were very close to me and that meant a lot to me when I sort of wasn't, I didn't have as many tools as I have now. But I've always been a very reflective, self-reflective person. I've always been a seeker for better, you know, whatever you think about that word, I'm going to use it. I've always been seeking and death is part of seeking. Death is part of life. I mean, I think it always, it always made sense. I was always aware that it could end. It's funny. I don't think I've ever really said this out loud, but I intuitively know it, that I had a very formative experiences in the wilderness as a child. I was lucky in that I went to an amazing summer camp that let me, that, you know, in which we spent lots of time in the back country backpacking and in the Tetons specifically. And that shit was dicey. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I'm 12 years old and like, we don't have food. Like we forgot our breakfast food for like a five day trip. I just had experiences that like 
really were at the bleeding edge of like presence and life and death, you know, like some dangerous stuff that I would never not trade for anything in the world. I love it. I, I think we need to do more of it. Like what I'm realizing is I think that kind of like vivid, really visceral presence of like, oh shit, this is going down right now. And like, I can either be terrified or be here for it. Those were very formative to me, for me. And those were like, I was 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. I guess I've always just, I've always just had this awareness. And then as, as I learned more about various traditions and went on my own journeys of spirituality and from tradition to tradition, uh, I, I got deeper into these practices. And, and then as people around me started dying, got a chance to explore it even more. So you actually have a practice that involves this? Yeah, I have practices every day and multiple times a day that keep me reminded of this, that we're right here on the edge all the time and that everybody I am is right here on the edge all the time. Everybody I love is right here on the edge all the time. I am thrilled to share with you an opportunity to get a hold of my handpicked lay low dates for 2022, as well as success dates to help you with launches, with signing contracts, with making big decisions in your business. If you would like that, it's called the 2022 astrology guidebook. And it's at my website, weaveyourbliss.com. You'll see it right at the top in the red bar. So get a hold of it. It's $33 and 100% of profits go to an Indigenous-led environmental organization. So I hope that's a huge help for you. Also, there's a link where you can drop it directly into your Google Calendar, meaning it's all there for you. You don't have to do anything and you can plan around those dates. So I hope that's helpful to you. Do you think that this has been a key factor in you being able to be so focused in bringing projects to life like this album and also the TED Talk, which we'll put a link to in the show notes for people to watch? Yes. it's. I'm going to go on a little tiny tangent for a second. But the other night I was watching a documentary about Jean-Michel Basquiat called Boom For Real. And it's about his teenage years, like before he became himself, really, like it ends when he sold his first painting. And then he lived seven years after that, before he died. It interviews all of his friends and the people he was palling around with in the Lower East Side, et cetera. And, and they were like, and one of them said something very interesting that was, you know, I think he knew that he didn't have much time. And that's why his art, like he was just iterating and trying things at a pace that was just so kind of accelerated compared to all of us, <laughs> you know? I say that because I don't feel like I have that. Who knows if that's true or not, right? Nobody will, nobody can ever know. But I don't feel like my in touchness <laughs> with being with death, like kind of accelerates my, you know, um, engine to get projects done. I mean, it definitely, I wish it did, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I feel like I do as much as I can do and be a sane compassionate, self-compassionate person. I think what it does is it helps me like focus for sure. It helps me be more aware of the sacredness of time. 
whatever time means. Um, <laughs> and but I think what it does is it helps me be sure that the people around me know what they've what they mean to me. That those connections are I don't know what the word would be. Like they know. They know what they've they mean to me. They know what they've meant to me. I don't want to die. I've made sure unless I'm, you know, make new friends, but even then when I make new friends, I let them know, you know, that that those the people that have been that are my people know what they've meant to me. And 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 so I think that's what it does for me. It's really interesting cuz from the karmic perspective, we have all these ties with different people mm. when we come into our life and we try to untie the knots that are not helpful and mm. we try to mend and, you know, move forward in a graceful way, right? So as you're saying that, it's like you're stepping to the plate to the relationships to actively do the things that need to be done to make it an easy transition for yourself. Like maybe Mm -hmm. you could say it like that. But what I would say is that you're making karmic amends and keeping Mm. things tidy for the next life to be not so naughty. (laughs) K-N-O-T-T-Y. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I I think so. I mean, I, I just I also saw my mom. My mom was so such an amazing person and she was such a mom in the sense of like totally self-sacrificing the rock of her family, of her large, her own family. Like she had, she was one of seven kids and then became sort of the rock of my dad's family, which was a large family as well. And she really didn't like when she got diagnosed, like the love, the love force that came towards her, she didn't know how to accept. And that's really why I started writing songs. I had these things I wanted to, I needed to work out, but I I needed to tell her, and this is what my TED talk, how it starts is that like, no matter how many times I told her, I'm here, I'm doing this. I want to be here. I want to do this because she felt so guilty and she felt so sort of like she was a burden on everybody. And I was like, this is what I'm doing. I love you. I would do this a million times, you know, like I'm doing this because I want to do it. It wasn't until I wrote a song about that and she listened to it, that it it sank in. And so watching her do this whole about face from not being able to let all that love in, my mom was just the best person. She was just so great. And she had so many people who loved her and admired her. And it was so hard for her to let it in. And she was like, that was her journey. That was part of what I did for those four and a half years was to was to get her to a place where she could understand that her life made a difference and where she could let that love in in a real, you know, way. And so I think I think I've been so important for me to like make sure that other people know that get that force of love from me. There's something in it for me, obviously I need to do it, <laughs> but it's also about me letting them know that their life was meaningful too. Cuz you never know. Yeah, you're just making me think of something small that happened today, which is like, I have all these conversations with different people in different contexts all the time. And I had someone write me and say, that conversation we had last week, I just want you to know that it mattered and it made a difference. And it just made, you know, it was like, I felt so um, happy to be there for that person. But a lot of times things just go back into they fold back. You know, and I was like, uh, in that moment, I was like, I'm going to commit to be more responsive like that and to tie back. Yeah. And say things like that. It's so beautiful. And we think we know. I mean, it's not, it's okay. Like, and, and everything's okay, right? Like, if we do it, we don't do it. Everything's okay. But when, when someone does it, it's remarkable. Like you just shared, 
It's remarkable. It means something. It really means something. And I, I, I'm lucky too. I have a few people around me or who I've come into contact with who are masters at this. I mean, I have my own way of doing it. I write a lot of letters and I've part of my ready to die practice is, you know, making a list of the, of the people I, whom I need to tell, you know, that, that, that need to know X, Y, and Z, how they've impacted me. And then I made that list and then I wrote the letters and I sent them off. In fact, some people, it took, that was a long process, you know, like heartfelt letters. And I think I've, I've sent them to a couple of people twice because I, by the time I got to the end of my list, I forgot, <laughs> you know, but I have some people in my life who are so good at doing that in their day to day, like just acknowledgement, like true, the, like real heartfelt acknowledgement. It's remarkable. Indeed. So this podcast largely is about living in your purpose. And that's, you know, we've been talking about that in certain ways is like, how do you answer the call when those moments come? But maybe you could just share if you have any thoughts on living in your purpose, what that means to you, what it looks like in practice. I don't know. I think I, I, I think I didn't really know what living in my purpose was, was until my mom, until my, my mom got diagnosed and, and that call happened and I answered it. I mean, I was always a very purposeful person. <laughs> like, that's not to say I didn't have purpose and, and want to have impact and make the world a better place. And, you know, in my own ways, and obviously I was called to music and have been pursuing that as a professional, which is not an easy path. You know, you don't, you don't just like willy nilly, like, you know, stay on that path. It's too hard. I think I'm still under, I think I'm still coming to terms with the word purpose. And I think even, even after, long after my mom died. I don't, I don't think I really, it took other people reflecting back to me. Like, man, you, you know, you really, you're, you have a way of talking about this stuff. That's very easy. That's very comforting. That's very relaxed. You know, that, then I was like, hmm, maybe there's something like, it was, it was almost like I needed people to reflect it back to me for me to understand that it was my purpose. Your purpose being helping people be ready to die. Yeah. Or, <laughs> or just opening up the conversation. Yes. Okay. Specifically being ready to die or also just opening up a conversation about life and the living of it and the death and the dying of it and then mystery, the fleetingness of it all. And who do you, how do you want to live? Who do you want to be? How do you want to live? Absolutely. And something you said today that I'll take away for sure is being with the question. So being with the question of what it means to live in your purpose, that's kind of why I started this podcast in the first place, because they're just like, let's have conversations about this. Let's see how different people have lived through their life and the journey and the stories and the insights mm -hmm. they've gained through that process. So living with the question of what is your purpose? Or how do you feel? Yeah, I wish I was someone who was like, my purpose, you know, <laughs> like, I secretly wish that I was that person, but I'm not. It's been a much more circuitous discovery, self discovery, getting sidetracked, coming back. I have a lot of interests and they they light me up. And so that too, like I've, I've had to I've had to be okay with that as part of my purpose is like, mm -hmm. this interest, this eye that casts around. Well, I have some rapid fires for you if you're open. I'm open. So what is one piece of advice that has really helped you in your life? Slow down. I, I, I'll give, I mean, slow down is a, another way of saying, you know, rest, rest and recovery and stillness. That's been the most, uh, just an incredible piece of advice in the last couple of years for me. And that in this, in, in our, our life, our times, our day today, now the, the world is so fast 
everything is so busy. We're all the people who listen to this podcast are all doing things, you know, making things, creating things. And it's, it's in the stillness and the rest and the recovery that the growth happens. I think that's, that's been the switch. And that, that has, was given to me, gifted to me by a, a, my um, performance psychologist, Mark Ayuagi. Cause I always sort of operated on the stress plus stress equals growth. Uh-huh. And he's like, it's actually stress plus rest equals growth. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do when you feel anxious, confused, or frustrated? What's the first thing that you do to ground yourself? I either sit down and meditate or I write in my journal or I call my partner. What is your favorite hot beverage? I love hot beverages. Me too. <laughs> um, Celestial seasonings, Bengal spices is a great one. I'm like, how can this be so delicious and sweet and have like zero calories in it? <laughs> you know, that's a favorite. I just love, I love tea. I love coffee, but I'm a person who can't have it afternoon. Otherwise I'm like wired. So I'm very regulated about that. What other hot beverages do I love? I mean, I love just a hot cup of water. I mean, sometimes I don't have tea. I just have hot water. People are always like, what? I'm like, yeah, you just try it. Just a hot mug of water. So what would be your last meal on earth? Pickles. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? (laughs) I love pickles. Any kind of pickle. I love a pickle. There's so many schools of thought on this question. It's like, do I go out with a bang? Do I like <laughs> eat the, you know, the thing that I know I shouldn't? Do I eat the thing right. I love that's healthy? Totally. I- so today, what would yours be? My favorite thing ever that I've ever eaten <laughs> is this loaf of bread I got in Brittany with salted butter and wild blueberry jam. And this oh, is the bre- this loaf of bread they only made one time a, a week. Uh-huh. And it was weighed. It was sold by the weight. <laughs> And it's like got all the, you know, it's the sourdough from a thousand years ago and I don't eat bread. So that is, that's the thing. (laughs) And like it, you can still taste it. That's how amazing it is. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, now that you say that, I have a few like that. Yeah, for sure. This, This kind of pastry I had in Paris that was like, like a loaf of bread, but it was basically like a croissant, Uh but it was as big as a loaf of bread. I mean, it was, it was remarkable. I can still taste it. Mm. So yeah, I mean, pickles in that probably. Okay. (laughs) Do you have a morning routine and what part, if any, is non-negotiable? Meditation, for sure. I'm a firm believer in some is better than none. That's like my mantra for living. Like some is better than none in terms of routines, you know, like, so it's meditation, it's uh, journaling, it's a self-creation practice as well I have. And some exercise for sure. And if I'm not in New York City, a little vitamin N, a little nature time, Uh you know, I mean, I I can get it in New York too, but I I go looking for it, but it isn't, it does, it's not always as nurturing as other places. Totally. Um, So tell us about a person who inspires you and why. Two people that inspire me. They're sort of the same. They fit in the same, they inspire me for similar reasons. My friend Katie Spencer and my friend Annabelle Smiley. They live in Alabama and they're about 80 years old and they're just the the most real, simple, grounded people that I know. Um, they They live in rural Alabama and life is what life is when you're 80 years old and live there. And they're role models for me in terms of, um, perseverance and resilience and, positivity and optimism and faith. Their faith isn't my faith, but it's, but it's a beautiful expression of faith, dedication to family and to community and to friends. Um, so tell us something that people might not know about you. 
Chinese was the language I studied in high school and college. I lived in China in, in Beijing in 1991, which is a long time ago. Wow. <laughs> yeah. This was pre-China that, as we know it now, which was amazing. What an experience. I, I traded a, postage, a U.S. postage stamp for a bicycle so that I could bike around Beijing and just had an amazing experience with a, another friend and I went over to study. There's a time that's gone. You know, that, that city doesn't look like that anymore. Or it doesn't act like that. Isn't like that anymore. So it's, uh, it is, that's something not many people know about me. Um, what's one thing that's bringing you joy right now? This conversation. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, getting to talk about these things, getting to talk about real things, real, a hashtag real talk, you know, in day to day life. I mean, you know, you and I are pretty intentional about our lives, but still in day to day life, especially in New York, I interface with a lot of people, you know, like we're not, Hashtag real talking it all the time. And also, I love the opportunity to get to know you and your work, you know, dive more deeply into that. I was watching uh, one of your, I guess it's a blog post, but it's really a video. Intuition. Okay. <laughs> Three ways of getting closer, getting in touch with your intuition. And, you know, just I, I just was marveling at the message, the way you really clearly talked about it. Um, oh, thank you. It's funny because when I put that one out and I didn't get a lot of response and I was like, eh, it'll live here on my... <laughs> Here's your response right here. <laughs> it'll live here. Yeah, here. Somebody will get inspired by this at some point. You know, I mean, I loved the stillness part. The part that I loved and so connected with was the part about, you know, if when you get the ping from your intuition, like do it, follow it so that you tell it, you teach it, <laughs> you know, you teach yourself teaching it that to follow it. And, and I can't, I actually wrote it down. It was something like cultivating a relationship to that quiet voice. That's what you said. That was such a beautiful way to put it because it is like you, you do have to cultivate a relationship with it. Yeah. You have to become a reliable narrator in your own story, <laughs> you know, that you are going to be trusted by this thing that is, and maybe the, the creative process is kind of like that. It's like an idea is coming in and you're, you're like, okay, I have to tend to this. I have to take care of this. I have to put a note somewhere and be intentional about it. You know, similarly. Yeah. Tend is a great word for it. It's like a bit like gardening, right? Like it's tending to this little tiny little seed, this little whiff, you know. So where can people find you online or connect with you? Uh Kateshot.com is sort of my music home and and blog and more about my music, but definitely other things too. So my last name is so it's K-A-T-E-S as in Sam C H U T T dot com. And we'll put that in the show notes as yeah, well. Yeah. Newsletter that's really fun and occasional. And not just about my music, about interestingness in the world. And, you know, I'm on the socials. Uh, at <laughs> we'll put Kate those Shutt. links too. Yeah. So your album is Bright Nowhere that came out last year. People mm -hmm. can check that out wherever yeah. they get their music. Yes. And I was thinking we would go out with the song Death Came Slowly, which I just think you shred on the guitar. Like I was playing it for my husband and I was like, listen to this. She's like not afraid to rock out. So <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty rocking song. Totally. And yeah. you can feel the emotion of the mm -hmm. song so much. So mm -hmm. um, is there anything you want to share before we end or? No, I just want to thank you for the opportunity and the willingness to have the death conversation and the grief and the loss and the life. I mean, to me, it's, it's really a life conversation. When you're talking about death, you're really talking about life. When you're talking about life, you're really talking about death. So I never take it for granted that people want to go there with me. It's okay if they don't. 
and I'm okay if it's an edgy conversation. Uh, it could potentially be a scary conversation. I'm okay with that. So I'm 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 very grateful for the opportunity to go there with you. And you well, know. I'm grateful to you. Thank you for being willing to jump on. I was just you know so excited when we first met. I was like, you're just the kind of person that I want to talk to and and have a conversation with. So I hope that everybody learns a little something from you today. And I'm excited to see what happens with your career in the next few years too, because I was looking at your chart and I was thinking, Oh, this is exciting. <laughs> I love when I see someone's chart and I'm well, like, there's I, a I, big I, growth spurt coming. Yeah, so I'm, I just really <laughs> want to say thank you to that too, because that's sort of like, you know, I wanted to talk to you anyway. And then those little insights and I can't wait to listen back and actually like listen again to what you said about the, that this isn't my world. You and I have talked about this and I'm looking forward to collaborating with you or putting you in touch with people in my world who could benefit from your world and your, your view. I can't wait to do that. Um, so thank you for yeah. that opportunity too. It's just so, it's such a treat. I'm so curious and, and can't wait to, to learn more. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Death comes slow. Death Comes death. Don't you look her in the eye? Your crooked shadow. There at the door My two hands can't help her no more Split my fingers Skinned both my knees Crawling Her disease Death comes slow Death comes shy Death, don't you look Thank you for listening to this episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. We hope it was inspiring for you. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment for us. I want to thank the team at Team Podcast who helped get this podcast out to you. And also to thank the musicians who were the creators of this beautiful music we're listening to now. It comes from an album, Fragments of a Season, by Alexis Georgopoulos and Jeffrey Cantula-Desma. So check it out wherever you get your music. Have a wonderful day and we will connect